0: Striking auto workers have reached tentative deals with all the big three automakers. It
1: really is life changing. The pay with the longevity of the contract that will get us over $40 an hour is a really good rate.
0: It is Monday, October 30th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Kimberly Mata-Rubio is running for mayor of Uvalde, Texas. Her 10-year-old daughter was killed in last year's mass shooting at an elementary
2: school there. I don't think we can move forward unless we have the answers that everybody in this community deserves. What went wrong that day and how do we make sure it never happens again?
0: Also, President Biden has signed a sweeping executive order to create some federal oversight of rapidly expanding AI systems. It's 4.01. First, this news.
3: Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Israeli military says its ground troops in Gaza have freed a soldier who was held hostage there. It's the first known successful military operation to rescue a hostage in Gaza. And Piers Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv.
4: Israel says its ground troops rescued Private Ori Magidish in an overnight mission. That rescue mission came as Israel continued with a ground incursion and heavy bombardment in Gaza City that Palestinian health officials say caused heavy casualties. The soldier was taken hostage by Hamas on October 7th, the day nearly 2,000 attackers stormed southern Israel, killing about 1,400 people and taking hundreds hostage. Four other female civilians were released by Hamas, in recent weeks in what it called humanitarian gestures. Israel says 238 people are still being held hostage in Gaza. Hamas released a video with three Israeli hostages calling on Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to set free Palestinian prisoners in exchange for their release. As with any hostage video, it's unclear if they were coerced. Netanyahu's office called it cruel psychological propaganda. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
3: The United Auto Workers have reached a tentative agreement with the final holdout, General Motors, potentially ending a a month-and-a-half-old strike against GM, Ford, and Stellantis. President Biden says the agreements ensure the iconic Big Three can still lead the world in innovation while supporting worker power from the middle out and the bottom up.
5: These record agreements reward auto workers who gave up much uh, to keep the industry working and going during the financial crisis more than a decade ago.
3: The tentative contracts still need to be individually ratified by UAW's members at the three companies. A Colorado court will determine if former President Donald Trump should be dropped from the state's 2024 presidential ballot over his role in the 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Today, Trump's attorney argued his client should not be held responsible for his supporters' actions. A woman in Jackson, Mississippi, seeking to exhume the remains of her son who was run over by an off-duty police officer, and Pierce Debbie Elliott reports Jackson police failed to notify the family of his death and buried him at jailhouse Popper's Field.
6: Betterstein Wade says she reported her 37-year-old son Dexter missing and kept following up with police but didn't learn what happened for more than five months.
7: What kind of system do we work upon? Do we have a system that
8: works for us?
6: Civil rights attorney Ben Crump represents the family. He says they will seek an independent autopsy and give Dexter Wade a proper burial.
9: And make sure he has a headstone and not a pole with a number on it and a pauper's graveyard.
6: The mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, Chokwe Antar Lamumba, says the failure was not malicious, but a lack of communication between police and the coroner. Debbie Elliott,
3: NPR
0: News. It's NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Student activists at Tufts University filed a complaint with the Massachusetts Attorney General today, alleging the school's ongoing investment in fossil fuels is illegal. Daniel Barshuk is a Tufts student and a climate activist. He says his group used a state law that regulates how nonprofits spend their money.
10: We basically state that Tufts Holdings and fossil fuels break state law.
0: Their central argument is that fossil fuel emissions harm the environment and human health in ways that contradict the university's mission. The activists estimate Tufts has 91 million dollars in fossil fuel related investments. Students from five other universities in different states also filed similar complaints today. With all the rain we've had over the last several months, stormwater and flooding caused by stormwater runoff is on the minds of a lot of people. The Boston City Council held a hearing on the topic today. The council discussed how the city can help prepare for the heavier rainstorms that climate change is likely to bring in the future. WBUR's Miriam Wasser has more. There are
11: two categories of solutions for stormwater management. Green solutions like rain gardens and pavement that lets water absorb into the ground and gray solutions, like new pipes. Kate England is Boston's director of green infrastructure. She told counselors that green infrastructure alone can't solve the city's stormwater problems, but it can certainly help. And she's glad to see it's being taken seriously. I think that we're getting to a place of alignment where we're understanding that the green has to be in there in in a meaningful way, Mm -hmm. um, and in a way that it kind of historically hasn't been. The counselors also discussed potential zoning changes to dissuade people from building in flood zones.
0: For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. The state has announced its low-income home energy assistance program begins on Wednesday. Massachusetts is getting $130 million from the federal government to help keep people warm this winter. State officials say homeowners and renters who need help heating their homes should apply online or through local anti-poverty agencies tonight at the garden the Bruins face the Florida Panthers and tonight the Celtics are in Washington against the Wizards it's 52 degrees in Boston some rain early then clearing sunny
12: tomorrow for Halloween highs in the upper 40s we're funded by you our listeners and by Carnegie Corporation of New York supporting innovations in education democratic engagement and the advancement of international peace and security more information is available online at carnegie.org
13: on a Monday. It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers.
14: Coming up, we'll head to Colorado and meet two friends who've made it their mission for 30 years to be on the first chairlift of ski season. But first, after six and a half weeks, the auto workers' strike appears to be at the finish line. Striking workers have reached a tentative contract with General Motors. That's the last of the big Detroit car companies to settle with the UAW. The union had already made tentative deals with Ford and Chrysler's parent company, Stellantis. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott.
9: Hi, good to be with you.
14: Hey, so what can you tell us about what's in this agreement?
9: We don't know all the specifics of the General Motors deal, but it likely follows the outline set by Ford and Chrysler's parent company. Uh, That includes a 25% pay increase over four years, cost of living adjustments, or COLAs, uh, accelerated promotion to the top of the pay scale, and improved retirement benefits. Uh, From the beginning of this strike, UAW President Sean Fain has been driving a hard bargain with the car makers, and Fain said over the weekend, it paid off.
15: The stand-up strike will go down in history as an inflection point for our union and for our movement.
9: The tentative contract also gives auto workers the right to strike over plant closings. Uh, It calls for the reopening of a shuttered Stellantis plant in Illinois. And the union made progress on organizing workers at battery plants, which will be important as we move to more electric cars.
14: Okay, we're calling this a tentative contract. So what still has to happen?
9: That's right. It still needs approval from the union membership. Uh, Sean Fain is the first UAW president to be elected directly by the members, and he says they're the ultimate decision makers. So this is not a done deal. Uh, Earlier this month, in fact, we saw a UAW contract with Mack Truck be rejected by the membership. This agreement, though, seems to have a lot of momentum. Uh, Brandon Bell was one of the very first Ford workers to go on strike. He was back on the job today at Ford's Michigan assembly plant, and he says he's excited about the new contract.
1: It really is life changing. The pay plus COLA with the longevity of the contract, it will get us over $40 an hour, which is a really good rate, especially coming in at 1650
9: Now, this will certainly raise the Detroit company's labor costs, which were already significantly higher than their competitors. Ford says the contract would likely add about 850 to $900 to the cost of a car or truck.
14: I mean, it, it seems like we've seen a lot of unions winning big wage gains this year. Is there a common thread to tease out here?
9: You're right. There have been some big wins. Uh, Teamster scored a good contract at UPS. Uh, some of the airline pilots have won big wage gains. You know, popular support for unions is about as high as it's been in decades. Harry Katz, who's an expert on labor negotiations at Cornell, says the UAW did have some things working in its favor.
16: The uh, economy is strong. The companies would have had a lot more to lose if the strike had continued. The union is strong, they can't replace the workers, so they had a lot of bargaining power and they exercised it.
9: That said, the union did not get everything it wanted. Uh, For example, it didn't get a return to an old-fashioned defined benefit pension plan. Uh, Kat says one of the UAW's big challenges is they just don't have the muscle that they once did. Uh, You know, there are a lot of non-union car makers out there. And even Fords and Chevys now have a lot of parts that are made by non-union workers.
14: Okay, what can the UAW do about that then?
9: Sean Fain says as soon as this deal is finalized, he wants to focus on organizing at some of those other companies. Uh, He said during the strike, workers at Tesla and Toyota and Honda are not the enemy. They're future UAW members. Uh, And certainly this new contract might serve as a kind of billboard for the benefits of union membership. But, you know, both labor law and the political climate make it really hard to organize workers, especially in the south where a lot of those other auto plants are located. So Katz says it is an uphill battle.
16: I don't think they're condemned to fail at that, but um, past evidence is it's going to be a really profound challenge.
9: And, you know, that's an important part of this story. Only about one in 10 workers in the U.S. belongs to a union, only about 6% of workers in the private sector. So these big gains that the UAW and other unions have been winning are impressive, but they're not representative of what the typical worker's getting.
13: NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Entrenched conflicts. They exist globally, as we see in the Middle East. Closer to home, Republicans and Democrats remain entrenched. Now, most of us do not stop to consider how brain science might be at play when we are at odds. But NPR's Yuki Noguchi reports understanding our impulses might also help resolve our differences. As social beings,
17: humans are wired to forge strong social bonds. Loyalties to groups helped us survive. Neurologist Olga Klemetsky at University of Vienna in Germany says, you see how social identity plays out on brain scans. Seeing a comrade in pain, a fellow member of one's group, will fire the empathic part of the brain. My brain would
6: simulate the suffering of the
17: other person by reactivating how I feel when I'm feeling bad, right? But let's say an adversary is the one experiencing pain. Klemetsky says not only does the same region not light up, We also sometimes see more activation related to schadenfreude or malicious joy. That's not all. Conflict literally dampens our ability to feel love. Klemetsky says couples who just argued have less activity in regions of the brain that sense attachment and fondness. Tim Phillips says the brain's natural impulses are critical to understanding conflict and its resolution. Phillips and his group Beyond Conflict helped negotiate treaties in Northern Ireland and helped convene what became South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission following apartheid. Phillips is not a neuroscientist, but he says decades of peacebuilding made him appreciate how deeply our ability to navigate conflict is influenced by our
18: evolutionary impulses. And unfortunately, when we ignore how our brains actually work, then we're increasingly finding ourselves in the situation we increasingly find ourselves in, which is that we're throwing bad approaches after bad approaches.
17: He says conflict worsens when we feel it threatens things we hold dearest, our social identity or our people. We dig in deeper, become less rational. When fanned or exploited, such sentiments can override our sense of morality, morph into hate and dehumanization, which make atrocities possible. Diffusing an escalating situation therefore first requires releasing a brain hijacked by defensive emotion. It means saying to your opponent, for example,
18: I understand how important this is to you. I understand this is core to your identity and your community, and I respect your sacred values. And there's a cognitive shift.
17: It shifts because it emotionally disarms them. Philip says such statements can change history. He cites Nelson Mandela in 1990, emerging from 27 years of political imprisonment to call South African President F.W. de Klerk, one of his captors, an honorable
18: man. And it had a huge impact. Nelson Mandela called me an honorable man. Without thinking about it rationally, he was probably deeply surprised. But Mandela just gave him a bridge.
17: The two men then worked to end apartheid. Phillips says a similar approach helped him repair a long-time friendship damaged by sharp political differences. Phillips offered an olive branch, voicing respect for his friend's viewpoint and how he'd arrived there. Within days, the friend returned. He said that statement prompted him to rethink his own hardline views.
18: He literally said, I felt like I could breathe in our relationship again. And I started to change my mind. And I didn't sell him on the the details and the policy. No. It's emotional.
17: They might not agree, he says, but at least they can talk. Yuki and NPR News.
14: season has officially begun in Colorado. The first resort opened yesterday, and on the very first chairlift of the morning were two friends who've made getting that first chair of winter their mission for more than 30 years. Colorado Public Radio's Stina Sieg has their story.
19: It's opening day at Arapahoe Basin Ski Area, and despite the pelting snow, there's a long line of skiers and boarders eager to ride their first chairlift of winter. Five,
20: four, three, two,
19: one. And on that very first chair, two very familiar faces who've been in line for two days.
21: My name is Nate Dog. N-A-T-E.
15: D-O-G-G-G-G. My name is Trailer Tom.
19: Nate Nadler and Tom Miller live nearby. Nadler owns a hot tub servicing business and Miller is a financial consultant, better known as the kings of first chair.
15: A few days in line is always well worth the wait.
19: They started when Miller was 15, Nadler was 14, and know what it takes. The night before opening day, Nadler shows me where he's sleeping directly underneath the Thunder Mountain Express chairlift.
21: I'll scoot the snow out and just sleep right on the ground.
19: A few years ago, Nadler had been waiting a whole day at one resort when he saw a stomach-dropping social media blast from another ski
21: area. Oh my gosh, they're opening in one hour. I need to get there. I need that first chair. So I jump in my vehicle, start heading up the highway, and I'm like, I left my snowboard at the other chairlift. He screeched his old Jeep around, grabbed his board, and somehow made
19: it before that first lift started spinning.
21: And sure enough, there was one person waiting in line already, but it's a four-person chair, still got that first chair, but gosh darn it, we were scared for it. We were scared.
15: It's that burning desire. If you have something in your life that you are so inspired to do that'll bring a tear to your eye, that's what this is for us.
19: Sunday marked their 31st first chair. Behind them, so many people who may take their crown someday, but not this year.
20: We're number two! We're number two!
19: For MPR News, I'm Stina Sieg at Arapahoe Basin.
13: Or listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Thanks for joining us this Monday afternoon here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 418. Next on All Things Considered, you'll get the story on how in countries across Europe, reactions are
22: varied to the war between Hamas and Israel. We're funded by you, our listeners and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and in technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu/met
0: In business news, Deloitte predicts Boston-area shoppers will spend more this holiday season compared to last year. That's according to the company's annual holiday retail survey. People in the Boston area are expected to spend nearly $1,900 on holiday shopping. That is 16% higher than last year and 14% higher than the expected national average. On Wall Street today, the Dow closed up about 1.5%. The S&P is up 1.2%. NASDAQ gained just over 1.1%. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Hunger to Health Collaboratory,
23: discussing integrated solutions that advance health equity. November 16th at CitySpace. Register at h2hcollaboratory.org. And Fresh City Kitchen, with a goal of delivering holiday catering everyone will keep talking about. Freshcitykitchen.com.
24: Turn your old car into new news.
2: Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars.
0: It's 52 degrees in Boston. Some rain early, then clearing tonight and lows in the upper 30s. Sunny tomorrow with highs in the upper 40s. Looking ahead to Wednesday, partly sunny, a chance of showers and highs in the upper 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR.
6: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers, Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways, in select theaters Friday, everywhere November 10th. From Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X, what's in your wallet? Terms apply, details at CapitalOne.com. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org.
13: It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
14: And I'm Juana Summers. Let's look at how the war between Israel and Hamas is perceived outside the Middle East or the United States, specifically in Europe, where politics and culture were heavily shaped by war in the 20th century. Joining us are three NPR correspondents, Lauren Freyer in London, Eleanor Beardsley in Paris, and Rob Schmitz in Berlin. Hi to all of you. Hi, Juana. Hello. Hello, Juana. So all three governments where you are are firm supporters of Israel's right to exist, but each is also facing domestic criticism of that support, What does that look like where you
25: are? And Lauren, I want to start with you in London. Yeah, so London has filled with like more than 100,000 people at these pro-Palestinian rallies every Saturday since the war broke out. They've been largely peaceful. There have been about 100 arrests over the past month for things like breaching public safety and inciting violence. And today, the hardline home secretary, the government here is ruled by the Conservative Party, called these protests hate marches. And she's actually asked police to arrest more of the protests. Tweak the law if need be, redefine what free speech means, what extremism means under U.K. law. And let me just talk you through an example. This is the sound of a sort of boisterous crowd on a London subway train on their way to a pro-Palestinian rally Palestine. last week.
20: Free, free. Palestine! Free, free. Palestine! Free, free. Palestine. You have and day.
25: the guy saying, saying free, free is actually the train conductor, like on the PA system. And then he ends with, oh, have a pleasant day. Look after yourselves. Be safe out there. But he was suspended from his job for taking part in that protest.
10: And Juana, this is Rob in Berlin. You know, if a train conductor said that here in Germany, he'd not only be fired, uh, but he might be criminally prosecuted for hate speech, here in Berlin, all pro-Palestinian rallies are banned. Schools have banned Palestinian flags, the Palestinian headdress, the kafia, which is sort of a hipster accessory that a lot of teenagers wear because it's getting cold out here as scarves, but they can't wear them anymore. You know, and the reason that Germany is so strict about this is because of the German concept of Staatrgesinn, and this literally means reason of state, and it means that because of the atrocities that Germany committed against Jews in World War II the existence and security of Israel is connected to the foundation of modern Germany. And that's why Germany is taking these protests so seriously.
14: And Eleanor, you're in Paris. What about France is different and how it approaches the war in Israel and Gaza?
7: Yeah, I think France is somewhere in between these two. Examples We've just had, you know, France actually has the largest Muslim and Jewish populations in Europe. So Macron, President Emmanuel Macron is trying to have a somewhat of a balanced approach. So, of course, France condemned the Hamas terrorist attacks and, and supports Israel's right to defend itself. But he's trying to also call for a humanitarian truce to get aid through. You know, Macron is under a lot of pressure. Thirty-five French citizens were killed in that Hamas attack. And that's more than any other foreign nation, I believe, even the U.S. Several more are being held hostage. And pro-Palestinian demonstrations have been banned here for fear of violence.
14: And Eleanor, I, I understand that French President Emmanuel Macron was in Israel last week. What What is he hoping to accomplish
7: well, he wants to, to see the two-state solution revived. He said, just because it's an old idea doesn't mean it's defunct. So he did visit, you know, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. But he also visited Mahmoud Abbas, head of the Palestinian Authority and the president of Egypt and the king of Jordan. He wants something to move besides violence. He wants this violence, this cycle that we keep seeing to end because it often reverberates back in France.
25: I think we've seen like a lot of European politicians doing that sort of circuit. I mean, the U.K. prime minister, Rishi Sunak, went to Israel, went to Saudi earlier this month. The U.K. foreign minister is in the region there today. He's already been like a few times since the war began on October seventh. So like a flurry of diplomacy for sure. But I mean, at least in the UK, it's unclear what power the UK really has. It does have like deep historical links to, to the region of British mandate Palestine before, you know, the the establishment of the state of Israel. But, you know, the U.K. is a supplier of weapons to Israel. And just like Eleanor said, you know, the U.K. has stopped short of calling for a ceasefire and has absolutely like thrown its its backing behind Israel. I mean, some of this travel is a little bit like, you know, looking statesman like a U.K. election is coming next year. But it's it's unclear what power these politicians really have to change facts on the ground. Rob, what about in Germany?
14: What would the German government like to see happen in this war?
10: Well, Chancellor Olaf Scholz has been very firm in his opinion that Israel has a right to defend itself. But that's the extent of his comments. He also supported the European Union stance released last week in a communique that called for, quote, humanitarian pauses in the conflict so that people in Gaza could receive humanitarian assistance. The EU is one of the biggest funders of aid to the Palestinian territories. And Germany gives around $20 million a year. So this is a priority, too, for Germany. But Germany also, like the US, sells weapons to Israel, weapons that are now being used against Palestinians.
14: I mean, this war has touched so many people in so many places in unexpected ways. Lauren, in Britain, is public opinion changing as Israel continues its offensive in Gaza?
25: Yeah, there was a poll recently that showed 89% of Britain support a ceasefire, but the UK government and both main political parties in Britain have stopped short of calling for a ceasefire. There's been a big backlash within the opposition Labour Party. Two dozen party officials resigned in protest. Big names like London Mayor Sadiq Khan, Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham are going ahead and calling for a ceasefire, breaking with their party leadership. And one of the biggest names calling for a ceasefire here is the top politician in Scotland. His name is Hamza Youssef, and his in-laws are trapped in Gaza right now. Here's what he told a UK TV channel.
12: I think the UK's position is a shameful abdication of their moral responsibility. You know, when I spoke to my mother-in-law last, she told me that she felt completely abandoned by the UK government and you know how many more children have to die.
25: So he's one of the strongest voices calling for a ceasefire here and he has a very personal connection to Gaza.
14: Eleanor, I want to ask you the same question. How is public opinion changing in France?
7: So after the Hamas attacks on Israel, there was a huge condemnation from France. People were very sympathetic because, as you may remember, France had two massive terrorist attacks in 2015. So people felt a lot of sympathy. But as this bombing goes on, Lana of Gaza, things are getting difficult. There have been 800 anti-Semitic acts since October 7th. That's double the number from the entire year of 2022. So Jewish people are are nervous. And finally to you, Rob, is the war having any impact on German policy toward Israel?
10: I think it's probably strengthening Germany's position in in defending Israel. There are several European leaders that have spoken out against Israel's cutting off of water and supply lines to Gaza, but Chancellor Olaf Scholz has refrained from this criticism. Instead, he says that Israel is a democratic state guided by humanitarian principles and because of that he believes the Israeli army will also observe the rules that follow international laws. So You know, this view sounds to some probably a little naive, and it's definitely a bit isolated when compared to the view of other EU leaders. And it's rooted really in Schultz's cautious approach to Israel that is really guided by what he sees as Germany's historic responsibility towards Israel.
14: That's NPR's Rob Schmitz in Berlin, Eleanor Beardsley in Paris, and Lauren Freyer in London. Thanks to all of you.
7: Thanks. Thank you.
25: Thanks for having us.
13: This is NPR News.
0: Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 429 and coming up in about 20 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR. You'll hear about President Biden signing an executive order to create some federal oversight of AI. That and much more ahead on All Things Considered. It's 52 degrees in Boston, some rain early, then clearing tonight. Lows overnight dropping to the upper 30s for Halloween tomorrow. Plenty of sunshine and highs in the upper 40s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include
23: Burton's Grill and Bar with modern American cuisine and signature dishes like crab-crusted haddock and superfood salad. Eight locations in greater Boston. BurtonsGrill.com I'm Robin Young. Erin French is the creative force behind one of the
7: hardest restaurants in the country to get into, The Lost Kitchen, and now in a new book, she's sharing
24: some of her secrets. This book is really about giving you that tool to add a little something special that you can take something that feels ordinary and make it extraordinary. Next time, here
23: and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR.
26: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. As the war in the Middle East intensifies between Israel and Hamas militants in Gaza, there are more reports of anti-Semitic incidents here in the U.S. The latest involves Cornell University, as Ava Pukach of member station WRVO tells us.
13: Cornell University administrators say the messages threaten violence to the Jewish community and specifically named 104 West the home of the Center for Jewish Living. They were posted on a website unaffiliated with the university. Governor Hokel told students the state will not tolerate threats or anti-Semitism of any kind. No one should be afraid to walk from their dorm or their dining hall to a classroom. That is a basic right. Hokel says the FBI was notified of a potential hate crime and says local and state law enforcement are working to identify those who made the threats and hold them accountable. For NPR News, I'm Eva Pugetsch in Syracuse.
26: A trial is underway in Colorado that seeks to remove former President Donald Trump from the state's primary election ballot. That lawsuit was brought by four Republicans and two independent voters who say Trump violated the 14th Amendment by inciting the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in 2020. Trump's lawyer in the case, Scott Gessler says, they categorically disagree.
27: Frankly, President Trump didn't engage. He didn't carry a pitchfork to the Capitol grounds. He didn't lead a charge. He didn't get in a fist fight with legislators. He didn't goad President Biden into a going out back and having a fight. Attorney Sean
26: Grimsley is representing the plaintiffs.
16: Trump incited a violent mob to attack our Capitol, to stop the peaceful transfer of power under our constitution. That mob got within 40 feet of Vice President Pence after they chased him from the Senate floor. That mob tried to hurt and kill our elected leaders. And we are here because Trump claims after all that.
26: This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. An emergency hearing is scheduled for tomorrow in a class action lawsuit to stop the state from making changes to its right to shelter law. Sometime this week, Massachusetts is expected to start putting families seeking shelter on a wait list because it says there is no more room in its family shelter system. The suit by the advocacy group Lawyers for Civil Rights argues that the decision runs counter to the state's shelter law, which guarantees housing for families and pregnant people. People with expertise in children and grief are offering guidance for parents in the days following a mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine. Wellesley-based therapist Omar Ruiz was a guest on WBUR's Radio Boston today. He shared these tips for parents immediately after a mass shooting.
28: Be open to questions. Children are naturally curious, uh, regardless of what age, because they're looking for answers, especially to things that are confusing or scary. And for parents just to do their best to listen to them. Stay calm and offer some reassurance because they're, they're scared. Their brains are still developing and they need that support.
0: He says parents should emphasize to their children that they're safe. He also says kids should be encouraged to stay in contact with teachers and other school staff if they get scared. The Bridge of Flowers in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts, will be closing tomorrow, as it does every fall. Because of anticipated repair work, it is not expected to reopen next year. Alden Bourne reports.
15: The old trolley bridge connects Shelburne Falls to Buckland and features a walkway surrounded by plants and trees. An engineering study found the infrastructure needs attention, and everything, including the soil, needs to come off for that to happen. Carol DiLorenzo is the head gardener.
22: We've gotten most of the perennials off,
15: quite a number of the shrubs. We still have shrubs and trees to deal with. The perennial shrubs and trees will be stored at her home and a nearby farm. DiLorenzo says the community is also pitching in.
22: We're basically offloading plants to people who feel ready to be caretakers. You know, anywhere from 5 to 20 plants people are taking with them.
15: If all goes as planned, the bridge will reopen in the spring of 2025. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne.
23: It's 434. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading health care systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org.
0: It's 52 degrees in Boston, some rain early this evening, then clearing sunny tomorrow, Tuesday's highs in the upper 40s. This is WBUR.
6: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com and from the listeners
14: who support this NPR station.
13: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
14: And I'm Juana Summers. With each mass shooting, lives are lost and countless others are destroyed. One of the worst in history happened in Uvalde, Texas in May, 2022.
9: We are following the breaking news out of Texas and it is heartbreaking news. 14 students and one teacher or dead, killed after a shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. All told,
14: 19 students and two teachers died that day at Robb Elementary School, including
2: 10-year-old Lexi Rubio. She's a beautiful person, and we miss her a lot. This should have never happened. She should be here. That's her mother,
14: Kimberly Mata Rubio, I first talked to her and her husband, Felix, three months
2: after the shooting. Lexi would have made a difference in this world. Uh, she was very into politics already at a young age. Um, I know she would have made a difference, so it's not just us who lost someone, the world. The world lost her.
14: Rubio is now hoping to make a difference by running for mayor of Uvalde in a special election next week. Earlier this month, we spent some time with her as she was campaigning for votes in Uvalde. That was before the year's deadliest mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine, and before a weekend full of gun violence across the country that left scores dead. We met her the day after what would have been Lexi's 12th birthday at the second annual Lexi Legacy Run.
2: Thank you all so much for coming out, really. It means so much to me.
14: She was still wearing her racing shirt, Lexi's name written in yellow, and a medal around her neck as she introduced herself to voters in a neighborhood six blocks away from Rob.
2: No shower. I'm just going again straight like this. Run, block, walk, typical Saturday.
14: She had just finished knocking on a front door when Joel Alvarado approached her.
2: Hey, good <laughs> he had
14: just missed her knocking on his door.
2: Wait, hey, hey, hey. Tell me about yourself. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I've always lived in Uvalde. Yeah. I work at the Uvalde Leader News right now. Yeah. Um, I lost my daughter in the Robb Elementary School shooting. Yeah. Um, so we've been fighting for accountability, transparency, and I decided, hey, I'm going to run for mayor.
14: Rubio is up against two other candidates. One has been mayor before. When I spoke to her three months after the shooting, I asked her how she was making her way through such a horrific and impossible moment.
2: I feel like, personally, I've just kind of thrown myself into the activism role. Uh, don't give myself much time to think of it. Um, I really don't think I've accepted it, really.
14: I asked her that question again last Tuesday.
2: I don't think that that answer has changed for me. I don't think that I will ever accept the loss of my daughter. But I have found... I think that for me, staying busy
14: is how i cope i want to ask you what may seem like a kind of obvious question but walk us through your decision making what made you decide to run for office immediately
2: after the tragedy i really threw myself in support of a complete ban of assault weapons at the federal level when that bill didn't pass we turned our focus to the state level raising the age from 18 to 21 to be able to purchase these weapons that also failed and in this journey I came to realize that change starts from the ground up in small towns like my own. I just decided that needs to be me. I have to imagine
14: that was not an easy decision. What was that conversation like at home for your family, your husband when you decided to take the leap and to run for mayor?
2: So I was actually at work and I texted him, you know, what do you think about this? And I, you know, I definitely had some apprehensions and he fully supported it. He actually encouraged it. He said, you can do this, you're Lexi's mom. And it just took those few words of encouragement for me to be all in. What do you think that you could
14: do as an office holder, as an elected official, that you can't do as a private citizen and as an activist?
2: There's nothing that the average person can't do as far as advocating for what they believe in their hearts is right and true. But as mayor and holding office, it's the platform to be able to share what happened here how it changed our community, the steps we took to move forward and bring those 21 individuals with us.
14: What has running been like for you? In any ways, is it harder than you thought it would be to reach people and to make the case to them that they should support you instead of someone else?
2: Block walking has been exciting because I get to meet people and I get to hear about them. But even when I meet people who don't agree with me, it's still a conversation that has to be had. It's still an opinion I want to hear. And it's still another member of our community that deserves to be heard.
14: Is there a specific story or encounter with someone as you've been block walking that stands out to you?
2: Not necessarily block walking, but a rise in encounters at stores. Um, A lot of little girls call out to me. They say, Kim, and some of them are around Lexi's age. Some of them aren't. Some of them are younger. Some of them are older. I just see so much hope in their eyes and it's beautiful and it reminds me of Lexi. And that's one of the moments that I'll take with me after this campaign. When you talk to people,
14: whether it's out there block walking or at other events, what are the types of things that you're hearing from people there? What do they want in a new mayor? What do they want for their community?
2: What I'm hearing is number one, healing. I think everybody feels the tension in this community right now and people do want to move forward it's just what does that look like that varies from individual to individual
14: i want to stick with talking about this tension for a minute here when you're having conversations with your friends your neighbors would-be supporters where do you see the tension between residents and uvalde
2: what's going on there i think it feels like it's those who back the 21 and those who want to move forward, forget, push everything under the rug. A lot of the tension also stems from our a calling for accountability and transparency with regarding the investigation, the failures that day. Um, I don't think we can move forward unless we have the answers that everybody in this community deserves. What went wrong that day and how do we make sure it never happens again?
14: And when you say the 21, you're talking about the 21 people who were killed at Rob Elementary. Is that right? Yes.
2: What difference... Do you think
14: that your leadership can make for your community, a community that has been
2: so marked by tragedy? I feel like I carry empathy that others don't. I lost my daughter, so I'm one of the ones that lost the most, you know. But I also understand the other side, and I also understand that there's this need to move forward because You don't want to stay in this heaviness, this pain. I completely understand. I also want what's best for my entire community. Before I let you go, what do you think that Lexi would think about you running
14: for mayor? What do you think she'd have to say?
2: One, Lexi is extremely competitive, so I know she would be excited and helping me on the ground any way she could. Um, I think she'd be really, really proud of me. She loved to read about women in positions of power. And I know she would have made a difference in this world if she'd been given the opportunity. So I want to do that for her. Kimberly
14: Mata-Rubio. She's running for mayor of Uvalde, Texas. Kimberly, thank you. Thank you. This story was produced by Karen Zamora and edited by Courtney Dorning.
13: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from NPR's Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Jennifer Reinhart. One night in 2003, Reinhardt suffered a traumatic fall that left her with life-threatening injuries. After three major surgeries and a medically induced coma, she was in tremendous pain. She remembers being in the hospital on a large amount of morphine to help her sleep through
29: the pain. When she woke up, she was dripping with sweat and shivering. I was so cold, but shivering made my whole body hurt. And so I was also crying because it It hurt so bad and and I was shivering and I couldn't stop. And I managed to reach the call button and called for the nurse. And when the nurse came in and saw what was happening, she's like, oh, honey, we'll we'll get you out of this bed and we'll get you into clean sheets. And I just was panic struck because every single piece of me hurt so badly. I, I didn't know that I would. I felt like I didn't know if I could even survive being moved out of the bed And she called in an attendant, and he was two or three times the size of me, and he walked over and scooped me up out of the bed like a little baby, (laughs) so tenderly and so gently. He held me like I was made out of tissue paper, and he just held me very still and quiet and Hummed a song very quietly while the the nurses came in and quickly got the sheets changed. There was something about the power of the sound of his voice and the vibration in his chest and how gently he was holding me that just put a balm and a soothingness over that pain that I was feeling. When he set me back down in the bed and they changed my hospital gown and I was back in dry, warm, they brought warm blankets. It was really the first time since I had fallen that I felt sure that I was gonna live through this. Then I'd get back home to my children. Oh, I wish he could have known just how much he helped me.
13: Jennifer Reinhart lives in Homer, Alaska. After staying in the hospital for three weeks, she was able to go home to her children, who are now 20 and 26. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo.
6: Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com Wilderness.
14: listening to all things considered from NPR news.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 4:48. Coming up at 5:35, ideas are changing about how people spend their older years. Instead of just leaving the workforce, many people are discovering life can begin again at age 60, age 70 or later. WBUR offers you surprising and inspiring stories of living a
22: third act. Don't miss today's story at 5:35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series, with Renee Fleming and Inan Barnaton, November 12th at Symphony Hall, with Voice of Nature, The Anthropocene, CelebritySeries.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. Listeners have the opportunity to attend open meetings of the WBUR
0: Board of Directors and the Community Advisory Board. If you'd like information about attending, then please visit wbur.org slash openmeetings.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, offering an upholstery event through October. You can work with interior designers to create a new, healthy look for your home. CircleFurniture.com. The story of a little girl possessed by the devil hit theaters 50 years ago. How did the exorcist change theological teachings?
7: We actually had to go back and relook at liturgies for exorcism and deliverance and that kind of thing as a result of that movie.
27: A theologian weighs in tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News.
7: Listen again tomorrow morning on
23: 90.9 WBUR.
14: This is All Things
13: Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. With artificial intelligence, it can be hard to tell when something is real or a deep fake, even when you are President of the United States.
5: Fraudsters can take three second, and you all know this, three-second recording of your voice. I've watched one of me on a couple of times. <laughs> I said, when the hell did I say that?
13: That, of course, was President Biden today, for real, as he announced a new executive order to create some oversight of these systems, especially the kinds of new AI systems with big national security or public health risks. NPR's Deepa Shivaram has been digging into this announcement. Hey there, Deepa. Hello. Tell me more about what this order is designed to accomplish.
30: Yeah, I mean, look, AI impacts every aspect of society. So every agency, every department is involved with what this executive order calls for, which is creating new standards on how AI can be implemented in ways that are safe and secure and fair when it comes to education, housing, law enforcement, healthcare. Uh, So this EO is notable and how wide reaching it is, but it's also significant because it really tries to hold large scale AI developers accountable, especially in the realm of national security. With this new order, AI developers that create this high-stakes technology will have to abide by the testing rules created by the federal government and share those results with the government. In this case, the White House has invoked the Defense Production Act to enforce that, which expands presidential authority in times of crisis.
13: You know, one of the things that is striking about the challenge here, and I know President Biden himself has acknowledged this, is how many stakeholders there are. You know, you're talking tech leaders,
30: civil rights leaders, civil rights leaders, labor unions. What, What kind of reaction are you hearing so far? Yeah, I mean, the majority of folks I've talked to have been pretty impressed with how much this executive order is trying to accomplish. Experts I've talked to are feeling really positive about things like standardizing testing for AI technology, which is called red teaming. That being said, there aren't much enforcement elements in this when it comes to more everyday things like AI being used in discriminatory hiring practices. Ifoma Ijunwa is a professor at Emory University, and she says the everyday risks that Americans are experiencing with AI are addressed in the executive order, but it's not as much of a focus as she wanted to see.
27: The actual
0: present danger is not AI becoming too intelligent, it's more that humans are using AI in ways that are counter to our
14: democratic beliefs about equal opportunity and equal protection.
30: Now, of course, the big part of enforcement and regulation here is that it has to come from Congress, right? And that's a huge task. Right now, there's a good bit of bipartisan interest in moving forward on AI legislation. But what form that comes in, if it's one big law or a bunch of smaller laws, that's very unclear. Biden did say today that he is meeting with bipartisan groups of Congress members tomorrow on this topic, so that is something to keep an eye out for.
13: Fair to say, the federal government has um, an uneven track record on regulating technology. Is this is this the White House playing catch up?
30: Yeah, I mean that's a great point, especially if you recall the disaster of the rollout of the website for Obamacare, yeah. or even right, even when tech leaders have come to testify in Congress and legislators don't really know how Facebook works. I mean, we've seen that, right? So Mm. throughout this process with AI, I think it's been really clear that the White House doesn't want to repeat those mistakes. And they recognize that this technology is rapidly developing. What the public is seeing now may be different than what people see six months from now. So there is a sense of urgency from the White House that the federal workforce needs to recruit more talent from within the country and also from around the world. The EO mentions speeding up visa processes for people in other countries to come study and work on AI in the U.S.,
13: That is NPR's Deepa Shivaram. Thanks so much.
30: Thank you. Celebrity
14: relationships are a constant source of headlines, whether you are Taylor Swift or the latest contestant on The Bachelor. And it all raises the question, can anyone find true love when everyone's staring at them? Our pop culture correspondent, Linda Holmes, recently looked at some numbers and came up with an answer. Maybe. Hi, Linda. Hi, wanna Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Celinda, so tell me, what can reality television possibly have to do with true love?
31: That is a very fair question. Uh, I started with this there is only one bachelor who is currently married to the woman who received his so called final rose in the last episode. That's out of 27 <laughs> rounds, uh, I think. But there are seven married couples who met on Big Brother, which isn't even supposed to get you married. So a calculated attempt to meet someone and marry them doesn't have a record as good as just being locked up in a house together with nothing to do until you're so bored that making out with somebody is sort of the only thing left to do with your free time. So you can have a relationship in public, but it's not necessarily the case that you can plan and choreograph one successfully with that goal in mind.
14: Right now, any discussion about celebrity relationships is gonna bring us all back to Taylor Swift and Kansas City Chiefs tight end, Travis Kelsey. And I am a Chiefs fan. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of thoughts about this, which I will set to the side Mm -hmm. right now. But this couple has attracted all sorts of attention, brought together Swifties and football fans. Does that story fit this model of never really knowing whether a relationship is real or fake?
31: It fits it perfectly because no matter how much people pretend they can look at that relationship and sort of from the outside and make sense of it, you really can't. Because of how famous she is in particular, any relationship she has is going to look like a public event. And I, I honestly don't know how she would make it look otherwise.
14: I'm just going to put on my cynical hat here for a moment. I mean, it does always seem like it's a big coincidence that a famous person decides to date another very famous person who has fans and status and all that stuff. Do you think it's understandable that people sometimes think, oh, they're probably just doing that for the publicity?
31: It's completely understandable. The other side of that, though, is that it's very hard to imagine Taylor Swift dating a so-called regular person. First of all, because I have no idea where she would meet one. She's probably not on dating apps and probably not going to bars to meet people. And second of all, because I think trying to be her boyfriend, if you didn't already have a lot of experience with attention and press and security and entourages would probably be a completely overwhelming experience. So it's it's easier to start with somebody who's already been down that road a little bit. So,
14: if it's impossible to know anything about celebrity relationships just from looking at them,
31: do you ever think we'll just stop looking at them entirely? That would be great. Probably for the people involved almost as much as for the rest of us, but probably not. You know, Hollywood relationship stories are uh, as old as Hollywood. Celebrity relationship stories are, are as old as celebrity itself. And we certainly never run out of dating shows. Uh, Max just started showing one from the UK called Naked Attraction, where everybody meets in the nude. Hmm. So yeah, so it's safe to say, uh, you know, gawking at the dating process is not gonna go out of style.
14: That's our pop culture correspondent, Linda Holmes. You can find her essay on celebrity relationships on NPR.org. Linda, thank you. Thank you so much
31: for having me.
29: You are
13: listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support
6: for NPR comes from this station and from Participant with the new film Radical, based on the true story of a middle school teacher in an impoverished town in Mexico who tries a new method of unlocking his students' potential, starring Eugenio Derbez in Theaters Friday. From United Airlines, committed to achieving net-zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 without relying on carbon offsets, Learn more at united.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. Fisherinvestments.com, investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, you'll hear about parents getting angry over horror genre ads popping up in family-oriented programming and scaring the children. For the perfect
32: spot to host your next event, discover city space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals.
14: I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Israel has expanded its military operation in Gaza, and conditions for civilians continue to worsen.
12: At this point, we don't care much about how intense the bombing is, um, as long as we come out alive in the morning.
0: It is Monday, October 30th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Sharon Prody, in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up with the war underway between Hamas and Israel, advocacy groups in the U.S. report a spike in Islamophobic threats. Also, you'll get the story of a third act pivot, a woman who went from Harvard Law and cable TV entrepreneurship to a career documenting black history.
28: You get at a point where you start asking, what is going to be your leave behind? What did you do in your life that was you know,
0: significant? And you'll hear about Google's CEO taking the stand in a significant tech monopoly trial. It's 501 First the News.
33: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. An end of the six-week-old auto workers' strike seems to be in sight. General Motors and the United Auto Workers Union have reached a tentative agreement. And NPR's Camila Dominovsky reports a deal is along the lines of the tentative agreements reached with Stellantis and Ford.
2: Last week, the UAW and Ford struck a bargain that included a 25% pay raise for all workers plus cost of living increases and retirement boosts. The pressure was on for Stellantis and GM to reach similar deals, and within days, they did. With tentative deals in hand, workers are starting to return to production lines, but these contracts are not finalized until they are voted on by UAW members at each company. They have the option to either accept the deal or send negotiators back to the table. The ratification process could take weeks. The UAW has called the tentative deals major wins, not just for auto workers, but for working-class people more broadly. Camila Domnoski npr
33: news president biden is applauding the tentative agreements calling them hard fought and historic israeli prime minister benjamin netanyahu is condemning a video released by hamas that appears to show three female hostages with one accusing him of failing to protect and secure the hostages release as with all such videos i can't be certain whether the statements were made under duress netanyahu says the video is cruel psychological propaganda he spoke today After the Israeli military said its expanding ground operations in Gaza resulted in the freeing of an Israeli soldier seized by Hamas.
9: The ground action actually creates the possibility, not the certainty, but the possibility of getting our
8: hostages uh, out. Because Hamas will not do it
9: unless they're under pressure. They simply will not do it. They only do it under pressure. This creates
33: pressure. The military says the freed soldier is doing well and has met with her family. Israel has been under pressure to agree to a ceasefire, but Prime Minister Netanyahu is rejecting such calls, saying today a ceasefire would be tantamount to surrendering to Hamas. But with Israel intensifying its ground operation in Gaza, calls for a ceasefire persist. NPR's Ritu Chatterjee reports on a letter signed by more than 1,000 academics who study child development.
19: The researchers and students are scattered across the globe, and they study child development, as well as factors that can derail the trajectory of kids' lives, like terrorism, war, and migration. The letter draws attention to the more than 3,000 children in Gaza who have died from airstrikes in recent weeks and the thousands more that have been injured. In addition to urging a ceasefire, the letter is also calling for immediate supplies of water, food, medical and humanitarian aid and for the immediate release of Palestinian children in detention and Israeli children taken hostage by Hamas on October 7. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News.
33: And from Washington, you're listening to NPR News.
19: This is 90.9
0: WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A Mansfield company is volunteering its services to help clean up the three crime scenes connected with last week's mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine. WBUR's Amy Sokolow has more.
34: New England Trauma Services CEO Mike Wiseman says the company's aim is to deal with death quietly. About 30 employees are in Maine cleaning the bowling alley, bar, and recycling facility where the shootings took place. Wiseman says he's grateful to be a small part of a community's healing process.
1: Unfortunately, in today's day and age, we're a very busy company. So if we can offer our services to help a community and this magnitude of people that have suffered uh, and that are involved in this, if we can help out in any particular way, when we can, we,
0: we do.
34: Wiseman says he expects his staff to finish the jobs around midweek. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow.
0: Supporters of a man killed by Boston police officers seven years ago are gathering alongside his mother at the State House this hour. They want Terrence Coleman's case reopened. Police and EMTs originally were called to a South End apartment for a well-being check on Coleman. Officers shot and killed him after they say Coleman charged EMTs with a knife. His mother disputes the claim. The Suffolk County DA's office later ruled the shooting was justified. The Worcester Housing Authority is expanding its food assistance program for elderly and disabled residents. It's adding 529 new households to the program. The first delivery of meals at the new site at Great Brook Valley will take place Wednesday. The program also is giving recipients four new non-perishable food choices. Activists are calling on the owners of a Bow New Hampshire power plant to stop burning fossil fuels. Eight people at a protest yesterday were arrested for criminal trespassing after paddling small boats in the Merrimack River near the plant. The protest was the latest in a series of actions from groups hoping to shut down the coal plant and ensure it does not turn into a gas-fired power plant. Kendra Ford is an organizer with the Climate Advocacy Group at 350 New Hampshire.
32: You know, we've said for a lot of years to just shut it down. And now we're really saying it's time for this to transition. It's time for this plant to become another kind of energy source, a clean energy source.
0: She says the group would like to see the plant become a solar power and battery storage facility. But the Bruins and Celtics are in action tonight. The 701 one Bruins host the Florida Panthers at the Garden, and the 2-0 Celtics play the Wizards in Washington. It's 52 degrees in Boston. Some rain early tonight, then clearing sunny tomorrow for your Halloween highs in the upper
8: 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Crock, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression.
13: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. It
14: is now the fourth day of Israel's ground invasion into Gaza in response to the October 7th Hamas attack that killed 1,400 people in Israel. Fatalities in Gaza continue to grow. Israeli attacks there have now killed more than 8,000 people, according to Gaza's Ministry of Health. Shelters run by the UN-Palestinian Refugee Agency, or UNRWA, are crowded with roughly 670,000 people, four times the number they're built to withstand.
13: Medical facilities are also operating at their limit. Dr. Fadl Naim has not left Al-Ali Arab Hospital in Gaza since the war began. The telecom's blackout over the weekend left him and his colleagues unable to communicate with other hospitals or with their loved ones.
33: They were one of the most difficult hours we have
35: lived through in recent days.
14: When phones started working again, Dr. Naeem says his heart was filled with joy, as if the war had ended.
35: Each of us started calling our loved ones to reassure that they are okay, and our hearts beat hard when the person we called didn't answer because we hadn't any connection, any communication with our people for two longs.
14: Another group frantically searching for news during the blackout. Thousands of workers from Gaza who had been in jobs in Israel and are now trapped in the West Bank and can't go home. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny visited a military university in Jericho where hundreds are staying.
24: At a university campus in the Palestinian city of Jericho, laundry hangs from the windows, men lounge on mattresses pushed up against the wall, scrolling for news from Gaza. There are communal sinks, and an impromptu barber shop where you can get a shave and a trim if you join the wait list. It's a makeshift camp home to more than 400 workers from Gaza. They sleep in rooms filled with bunk beds. When we visit, they tell us, all we want is to go home to Gaza. These men are among the nearly 20,000 people from Gaza that had permits to work in Israel. Many of them work in restaurants or retail or as construction workers. For the last year, Walid has worked in construction near Tel Aviv. He usually stays in an apartment there for two weeks at a time. We're not using his last name because he's afraid for his safety. After Hamas militants crossed into Israel and killed 1,400 people, Walid was among the workers from Gaza who were unable to return home. And tell us a little bit about that day, October 7th. For you,
36: what was that like? What happened? He says
24: on the morning of October 7th, his Jewish employer called him on the Sabbath, which he never does, and said, be careful, don't leave your apartment. This war will be dangerous for you. A few days later, Israel revoked work permits for people from Gaza.
36: So Alid stayed inside
24: for a week. He didn't leave, he ran out of food. His wife called him. She'd been worried about him being in Israel. Israeli authorities did detain thousands of workers from Gaza, some of them violently, according to an Israeli human rights group. Walid got a visit from police. He suspects a neighbor heard him speaking Arabic.
36: He didn't answer the door.
24: He pretended to be asleep.
36: He says he was afraid
24: and began to shiver. He worried about his children. His daughter wants to be a doctor. She's in her first year at university. The money he sends home from work in Israel helps pay for her tuition.
36: But the police went away, and then his employer
24: called. Come down into the street. I'll wait for you there, he
36: said.
24: Walid got into his employer's car and made it to the West Bank, which is under Israeli occupation but where the Palestinian Authority has some local control. That's where thousands of workers from Gaza have taken refuge. They're estimated to be about 1,500 here in Jericho. At the university, has leaned on other workers to process all this loss of their livelihood, some their family members, many their homes. Ibrahim Afrani's family survived Israeli airstrikes while seeking cover at a playground. He's from northern Gaza and had a permit to work in Israel at a store stocking vegetables. He told us through our producer, who interpreted, that there are no buildings left in his neighborhood.
37: على بيتنا he had a video but
34: it disturbed him too much that he deleted it he didn't want to see it anymore it was too disturbing for him to see it so he deleted
37: it. he was watching it over and over again. he
34: watched it four or five times and then he was like I'm gonna delete it and he deleted
37: it. انت عارف النفسيه فيش
34: my uh, mental state of mind is destroyed. I'm in a very
37: bad place right now.
24: Elfrani has nearly two dozen nieces and nephews, and he gets overwhelmed thinking about all those children going through this trauma right now. Israeli bombardments have killed more than 8,000 people in Gaza. What's her name? Layan.
37: Layan? Razan.
24: Elfrani scrolls through his phone, looking at photos of his two young daughters. They help him forget all the bad things that have happened in these last three weeks.
37: My brother is missing,
20: who also is a worker.
24: His brother, who works in the north of Israel in a town called Nahariya, has been missing for 20 days.
37: Oh. I
24: last talked to him at 11.30 a.m. the day after the attack by Hamas. He hasn't heard from him since.
37: The other workers staying with
24: his brother told him the Israeli military came and detained him. According to human rights groups, thousands of workers have since gone missing and are thought to have been arrested by Israeli police. In the courtyard of the university, Basel Israel tells us even though he and the other men are safe here, they'd rather be home in Gaza.
35: I am feeling in my house, but, but my heart, my mind, not here.
24: His wife and five children are staying in Al-Shifa Hospital, where the UN estimates some 50,000 people are seeking refuge from Israeli airstrikes. He relishes every text message, every call, even if they are chilling.
35: My son, his name Ali, I speak with him. Ali, how do you do? How are you? How do you find? Uh, baba, I'm okay. I am. But uh, do you know what I do? I told him, what do you do? Baba, I am right. My name in my hand now.
24: He writes his name on his arm.
35: Uh, Why? I told them why. Maybe I am am killed. I want to be, you know, this man, this young.
24: I want them to know who I am when
35: I die. It's a big problem for him.
24: What does it feel like for you on the other side of that phone call to hear that, but to be here?
35: No, I want to be to go together. If you can to put me your baggage, if you can. I want to die with my children. I am father. But now my children was without father. For
24: 48 hours this weekend, Israel didn't hear from his family. Nearly everyone in Gaza was without a cell or internet connection. But then earlier today, he finally got them on the phone. And for now, everyone is okay. Alyssa Adworni, NPR News in the city of Jericho in the West Bank.
13: watching TV or streaming or at the movies around Halloween, you are likely to see trailers for horror movies. But what about when your kids end up seeing those trailers too? As NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports, there are things parents can do to avoid the scary, but keeping up with parental controls requires vigilance.
38: When NPR put out a call for adults whose kids have gotten scared by horror movie trailers, we heard stories. One dad said he became a remote-control ninja every time they watched sports. A mom bought tickets to see Gran Turismo with her 9-year-old. It's pretty tame, but the theater showed a trailer for Five Nights at Freddy's. Hello. There's no remote in a movie theater. But even when you're at home, all it takes is a few seconds of gore to scare a child. That's what happened to Kari Pitkin recently when she was watching the comedy Brooklyn Nine-Nine with her 11-year-old daughter.
39: Slip me some skin. (laughs) Sprinkle me, sprinkle me. me. And all of a sudden, a trailer for the new Exorcist movie came on. I think it's called Believer. The
1: body in the blood.
39: The body in the blood. I quickly, like, shut down the computer, but... My daughter has a very you know, big imagination, and she doesn't like scary. And she went totally pale and kind of held me and was like, what was that? And of course, in the big picture, she's fine, but it just seemed like such an, an avoidable thing. It seems
38: like it should be avoidable, but opting out is complicated. Just about every platform has parental controls designed to help adults filter what kids see, but what's appropriate for kids is subjective and good luck keeping up with technology. Betsy Bozdek is with Common Sense Media.
40: I think parents constantly feel like they're falling behind on parental controls. They're not the same from service to service or device to device. Even when you can figure out where to go, like sometimes you have to put in a code, sometimes you don't have to put in a code, sometimes you like flip a switch and says, I want this to be safe. But then your kid could just as easily flip that switch back. So it needs to be easier and it needs to be really straightforward.
38: This is a systemic problem with, so far, no good answers. Bosdek says one thing parents can do is watch with their kids.
40: If you are watching together and you can pause or skip something that comes up, that's great. And, you know, to talk to your kids about what they've seen. If they seem rattled by an ad, even if it's just, you know, a 30-second spot... It's a great opportunity to jump in and explain that this is fantasy, it's entertainment, you know, it's not real.
38: Bosdeck knows co-viewing isn't always an option, but she says until there's regulation, platforms can show just about whatever trailers they want. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News.
14: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 518 and coming up in about 15 minutes here on All Things Considered, finding a new direction in life's third act.
23: WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com.
0: If you're catching a Boston Celtics game at TD Garden, then prepare for some beer sticker shock. A new report from the sports betting news website bookies.com finds that a beer at the Garden is the most expensive in the NBA. The average price of a 16-ounce beer will set you back $19.87. The cheapest beer in the NBA is in Cleveland at $5.78. On Wall Street today, the Dow closed up about 1.5 percent. The S&P is up 1.2 percent. NASDAQ gained at just over 1.1 percent.
22: This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, committed to being a partner in renewable energy from consultation to installation. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com.
0: It's 49 degrees in Boston, some rain this evening, then clearing tonight and lows overnight in the upper 30s. Tomorrow for Halloween, sunny skies and temperatures in the upper 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support
6: for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. dataiku.com. And from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morvin Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at britboxcom
13: slash NPR. This is NPR.
23: This is
14: All
13: Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers, And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Who wants to buy a bankrupt retail chain? Think back to stores like Juicy Couture or Pure One. They went under, but turns out not all the way under. Someone today makes money on these names. NPR's Alina Seljuk takes us into the shadows of retail.
34: Can there be life after death of a brand? Picture yourself in an abandoned mall american apparel filed for bankruptcy
9: sharper image
13: Aeropostale. wet seal nautica forever 21 has become the latest store to remind us that nothing is really forever except
34: the lights flicker on in this grim mall and you realize these stores aren't that dead someone brought them back to life Take Forever 21. It actually got bought out of bankruptcy by an unusual team. On it were America's biggest mall operators and this company called Authentic Brands Group. Authentic Brands owns dozens of labels, some of which you may not even realize had gone bankrupt. Nine West, Quicksilver, Juicy Couture, Brooks Brothers. They're very niche. James Cook is the director of retail research at real estate firm JLL, and he says there are only a few companies like this. And very broadly, the business of undead brands centers on this fairly simple premise.
41: Not everybody knows the store is closed. People are Googling that brand all the time. It still has like a name recognition.
34: When a company goes under, it's often and sold for parts, and someone can buy its intellectual property. That's the branding, designs, customer data. If you own this, you can try to do sort of retail taxidermy. Stuff new operations inside this familiar shell, give it a new charge, and hopefully do better. But nobody makes money on undead brands quite like Authentic Brands Group.
18: It's a very interesting business model.
34: Alex Tercelier helps companies strike these kind of deals as a principal at the consulting firm Carney.
18: It's definitely a very innovative way to look at retail.
34: What Authentic decided is that it would have nothing to do with the expensive parts of retail. It does not run stores or warehouses. It doesn't actually make anything. Instead, it owns the label, the branding and sells licensing rights.
18: You know, manufacturer, the actual company that will produce the good will pay you some kind of royalty fee to use. The design the brand.
34: And so if you go say into a Brooks Brothers and buy a shirt, someone paid Authentic Brands to put that label on that shirt to run the store under the brand. And Authentic is like the puppet master with hundreds of strings, making sure the quality is right, the marketing is good, the brand stays relevant and worth it for everyone.
18: The sole owner of basically everything that makes a brand cool.
34: Authentic does this for fashion labels, but also famous people. It controls global branding for Elvis Presley, Marilyn Monroe, David Beckham, and Shaquille O'Neal, this approach, stripping out all the retail overhead and just focusing on buying and recharging brands, it can be really profitable. Authentic did not answer NPR's questions, but three years ago, the company said its revenues were close to half a billion dollars. Nearly half of that was profits. Here's the downside.
18: My take is that it's, it's more risky than a normal business.
34: For example, another firm that had bought the intellectual property of Radio Shack, Pier One and Dress Barn was recently reported to be weighing its own bankruptcy. That's why Terselier describes this as a business built on leaps of faith. And so far, authentic brands seems to be landing on a few gold mines. But is it the savior or a grim reaper of struggling brands, Terce Lear says?
18: I think they would probably describe this as, as custodians in a way, because they are bringing a new business model in order to either revive or keep alive brands that might have been completely gone otherwise.
34: Collectors of retail antiques with maybe a touch of taxidermy. Alina Salyuk, NPR News. The
14: biggest tech monopoly trial in decades is heating up in Washington. The Justice Department says Google broke the law by thwarting competition. Now it's Google's turn to try and prove the government wrong with its star witness. NPR tech correspondent Dara Kerr was in the courtroom today, and now she is here in studio. Hi, Dara. Hi. So that star witness was Google CEO Sundar Pichai. What did he have to say?
42: Yeah, so this trial has been going on for nearly two months now, and Pachai has been one of the most highly anticipated witnesses. So the courtroom was packed. He was calm and tried to answer all the questions he was asked. He has a bad back, so he's actually standing at a lectern for his testimony, which was around four hours. Other witnesses have been seated. And just about all of his testimony was about Google search, which is at the heart of this case. Okay, say more. Why is that? Yeah, so the Justice Department's case really boils down to how Google has used its dominance to make sure it's the world's top search engine. Google controls about 90% of the search engine market, and they say that hurts people because it means we don't have a lot of choice in one of the critical ways we search for information. Pachai is one of the most qualified people to talk about this. Pretty much since he joined Google, he's worked on search products. During his testimony today, he talked about one of his first jobs at Google working on the little search toolbar you see at the top of web browsers Hmm. and he later led the team that built Chrome which is Google's own web browser that features search predominantly he also testified about negotiating exclusive agreements with device makers like Apple to make sure Google is the default search engine on most computers and phones
14: okay remind us if you can what it means to be the default search engine on a device
42: Okay, so when you open your iPhone, say, and go to Safari to search for something like nearby restaurants, you probably don't notice it. But even on Apple's Safari, that search happens automatically on Google's search engine. Yeah. So that's because Google has a very lucrative deal with Apple. And Google has these agreements with other companies like Samsung, Verizon, web browsers like Mozilla's Firefox. During the trial today, the Justice Department's attorneys kept hammering on the point that Google has paid billions of dollars every year for these agreements. For example, in 2021, Google paid more than $26 billion, yes, $26 billion, to ensure its search engine was the default on most mobile devices and web browsers. And the Justice Department says Google uses its vast power to illegally stomp out competition, meaning there could be better alternatives, but it's just impossible to compete.
14: OK, well, four hours of testimony. What did Pachai have to say about all of that?
42: Yeah, he agreed that these defaults are extremely valuable to Google. And that's why it pays billions of dollars to keep them. He saw several Well we saw, not he saw, he saw them too, but we saw several emails and internal documents basically saying how important it is for Google to be the default. Pachai also spoke about how Google is the best search engine so companies like Apple see value in these deals too. Apple doesn't have its own search engine, so it's picked Google as its search engine of choice. And this has already been a long trial, and Google is expected to take another three weeks to wrap up its defense. The Justice Department will then have a chance for rebuttal. And if it succeeds in convincing the judge, that could really change
14: how we use Google Search. NPR's Derek Hurt. Thank you so much. Thank you.
6: Support for All Tech Considered comes from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI. Dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. DATAIKU.com
13: This is NPR News.
0: Thanks for joining us here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 529, and coming up in about 25 minutes, a new study concludes it is unlikely that humans will limit global warming to the target set by the Paris Climate Agreement, but the researchers say all is not lost. That and more ahead on All Things Considered. Getting news alerts all day is not the way to get a handle on the full story. WBUR is your source for context and perspective. Listen here on 90.9 WBUR or live
22: on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, hosting corporate events in a replica U.S. Senate chamber and high-tech multi-use spaces. Visit emkinstitute.org events. And Walden Local Meat, nourishing communities with sustainable meat and seafood from local farmers. Delivered right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com You know what I love about Posting Morning Edition? I
25: get to introduce the work of our incredible reporters, or interview people living through their most joyous moments and sometimes their most difficult days. It helps me and you,
2: our listeners, understand the world we live in. But it also costs money, so donate your car towards supporting the work. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org slash
38: cars.
26: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The six-week-old strike against Detroit's Big Three automakers appears to be all but over after General Motors joined rivals Ford and Stellantis today in agreeing to a tentative four-year contract that includes 25% pay raises and cost of living adjustments. President Biden praised the deal, saying the collective bargaining was done in good faith because of the commitment and solidarity of UAW members.
5: These agreements ensure the iconic Big Three can still lead the world in quality and innovation.
26: The GM decision comes after the UAW widened its walkout over the weekend at the company's biggest North American plant in Tennessee. It also follows tentative agreements with Ford last week and Jeep maker Stellantis on Saturday. Workers at all three companies will return to the job as votes to ratify the contract take place over the next couple of weeks. Government officials in the UK are considering whether to raise the country's terror alert level after a spike in hate crimes against Jews and Muslims since the Israel-Gaza war began. NPR's Lauren Freyer with more from London.
25: More than 100,000 people marched in a pro-Palestinian rally here Saturday. Such protests have become a fixture in London since the Israel-Gaza war began. They've been overwhelmingly peaceful. But about 100 people have been arrested for breaching order or inciting violence. Police say Iranian agents may be trying to stoke unrest. After some fringe protesters chanted the word jihad, government ministers are looking into tightening free speech laws. And also Also redefining what extremism means to allow police to arrest more protesters. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London.
26: Stocks finished higher on Wall Street. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. With all the rain we've had over the last several months, people are paying more attention to stormwater and flooding caused by stormwater runoff. The Boston City Council held a hearing on the topic today. The council discussed how the city can help prepare for the heavier rainstorms that climate change is likely to bring in the future. WBUR's Miriam Wasser has more. There are two
11: categories of solutions for stormwater management. Green solutions, like rain gardens and pavement that lets water absorb into the ground, and gray solutions, like new pipes. Kate England is Boston's director of green infrastructure. She told counselors that green infrastructure alone can't solve the city's stormwater problems, but it can certainly help, and she's glad to see it's being taken seriously. I think that we're getting to a place of alignment where we're understanding that the green has to be in there in in a meaningful way um, and in a way that it kind of historically hasn't been. The counselors also discussed potential zoning changes to dissuade people from building in flood zones. For 90.9 WBUR,
0: I'm Miriam Wasser. Student activists at Tufts University filed a complaint with the Massachusetts Attorney General today alleging the school's ongoing investment in fossil fuels is illegal. Daniel Barshuk is a Tufts student and a climate activist. He says his group used a state law that regulates how nonprofits spend their money.
10: We basically state that Tufts Holdings and fossil fuels break state law. Their central argument
0: is that fossil fuel emissions harm the environment and human health in ways that contradict the university's mission. The activists estimate Tufts has $91 million in fossil fuel-related investments. Students from five other universities in different states also filed similar complaints today. The state Senate has named its negotiators who will work with House negotiators to hash out differences between two versions of a wage transparency bill. Both the House and Senate bills require employers with 25 or more employees to publicize salary or pay range amounts when advertising job openings. The difference between the measures? The House bill includes an exemption for state and local governments if the salary information is already publicly available. The state has announced that its low-income home energy assistance program begins Wednesday. Massachusetts is getting $130 million from the federal government to help keep people warm this winter. State officials say homeowners and renters who need help heating their homes should apply online or through
22: local anti-poverty agencies. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Waltham Open Studios. Learn about art making and visit more than 70 artist studios in three buildings on Moody Street in the heart of Waltham this Saturday and Sunday. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit BlueCrossMA.com slash go. It's 49 degrees in Boston.
0: Some rain early, then clearing. And tomorrow for Halloween,
22: sunshine,
0: and highs in the upper 40s. This is WBUR
6: support for npr comes from this station and from focus features presenting the holdovers paul giamatti reunites with director alexander payne for the first time since sideways in select theaters friday everywhere november 10th from procter and gamble maker of z quill pure z's gummies designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally learn more at zquill.com and from ecmc foundation at ecmcfoundation.org.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Whose history matters and who gets to tell it? Those questions inspired The History Makers, a project that has recorded thousands of video oral histories of Black Americans. Juliana Richardson founded History Makers after careers as a corporate lawyer and cable TV entrepreneur. Richardson is one of many people reinventing themselves in late or midlife in unusual and inspiring ways. WBUR's Anthony Brooks has her third act story.
20: Let's just
28: see. I do have my keys. Okay.
27: In a Chicago office building, Juliana Richardson enters a room full of white metal shelves packed with thousands of folders containing the stories of black Americans.
28: These are the paper records.
27: You know, we have their correspondence,
28: biographical information, oh, transcript.
27: Richardson, who's 69, founded the history makers more than 20 years ago. The nonprofit has collected masses of documents and recorded thousands of video interviews with the famous and not-so-famous, from black athletes like Ernie Banks.
5: No bats, no balls, no gloves, no nothing. We played with um, old rag balls. So what did you use for a bat, a broomstick or something? A broom, that's exactly what you use, a broomstick.
27: To black artists like poet Maya Angelou.
43: Although I met Langston Hughes, he invited me to his house in Harlem. I don't remember anything he said,
27: but I remember he was very kind. To black politicians, including a young state senator from Illinois, recorded in 2001.
26: I'm Barack Obama. That's spelled B-A-R-A-C-K-O-B-A-M-A. And my birthday is August 4th. You know,
28: that was done right in that room over there. And it's really extraordinary, you know, like, the path that he took. I
26: wasn't really focused on running for office, per se. I was more interested in helping to build an agenda for the African-American
43: community politically.
27: Seven years later, he was president. Richardson says the seeds of the history makers were planted when she was a child, growing up in Newark, Ohio. She was the only black girl in her class, beginning to understand that something was missing. There was no history. Not black history.
28: There was not even a sense of where my place
27: was in American society. She learned about George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and the War of 1812. She also knew about slavery, that her great-grandfather, whom she called Papa, had been enslaved. It was my job to go and get him
28: ice water. And slaves never wanted to talk about slavery, but we would whisper, Papa was a slave.
27: So that's all we knew. Richardson says that desire for a history of her own stayed with her. As a sophomore at Brandeis University, while researching the Harlem Renaissance in New York's Schaumburg Library, she made a life-changing discovery about this iconic American song.
20: You're just wild about Harry.
27: Richardson says she was thrilled to learn that this song, long associated with President Harry Truman, was written by the Black songwriting team of Noble Sissle and Eubie Blake. That inspired her to record a series of interviews with other prominent Black Americans. In a TED Talk last year, she said in hearing their stories, she uncovered hers.
28: I had a history to call my own. I, too, according to Langston Hughes, I, too, am America. And from that day forward, my life was forever changed.
27: But Richardson's path did not follow a straight line. She went to Harvard Law School, then landed a job in a Chicago firm where she was the only black attorney and just the second woman to work in the corporate department.
28: I was very upfront with the partner. You know, I said, what happened to the other woman? he said, well, some of the clients didn't want to deal with her. And I said, well, what about me? He said, some of them won't want to deal with you because they're not blacks in corporate America on the other
27: side. After two years, she resigned. She became the cable TV administrator for the city of Chicago, launched her own production company, and then in 1985, she tried something else. This is where
28: everybody's with me until I say what I'm about to say. I started a home shopping channel.
27: She raised a million dollars and launched one of the first regional home shopping channels in the country. But it didn't last. Then Richardson worked for Comcast and C-SPAN until the cable industry restructured and she was out of a job, feeling lost and confused.
28: I couldn't go back to practice law at this point. Too many years had passed. My home shopping channel had gone belly up. And what was I going to do? But I say often that sometimes at your darkest moment, the thing that's intended for you is right there.
27: That epiphany she had at Brandeis sparked the next idea. A video archive of black Americans that she would call the history makers. It was a bold plan with one big problem. Richardson had no financial backing. Her friends thought it was a terrible idea. Even her mother, Margaret Richardson, who at 93 still helps run the Chicago office, had her doubts. What was your reaction? Did you think it was a good idea? (laughs) At first I thought, oh
28: God, but no. She would go, Harvard trained lawyer. What is a Harvard trained lawyer? I say, when you don't have anything you're building, it is very, very, very hard. And getting people to understand, including me, what the dream really was,
27: is hard work. Richardson forged ahead. She began history makers with a laptop on her dining room table. 23 years later, she's raised more than $36 million and recorded close to 3,600 interviews. Today, they're accessible through the Library of Congress and at colleges and universities across the country.
28: That's me with Harry Belafonte, so that was our first fundraiser. Here's Ramsey Lewis. He just died, but he um, had an event in his
27: apartment and raised 50000 for us in one night. The walls of Richardson's office are lined with photos of people who are now part of the history makers. But she says there's urgency to gather more interviews before it's too late. She says lots of written materials documenting black history from the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries have been lost forever.
28: I'm so concerned about our nation losing the 20th century. And why the preservation is key? Because it determines value. You preserve what has value, you don't destroy.
27: And so I worry about that. After chapters as a corporate lawyer, entrepreneur, and cable TV administrator, history makers became Juliana Richardson's third act.
28: You know, you get at a point where you start asking, what is going to be your leave behind? You know, what did you do in your life that was, you know, significant? If we do this right, it will be something that hopefully makes society a richer place.
27: Juliana Richardson says she might have been a good corporate lawyer in another time, but history makers called. It began as a discovery, then a dream deferred, and then a leap into the unknown. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks.
0: Anthony will be back next Monday with another third act story. Have you reinvented your life in a surprising way? If so, tell us your story. You can email us at thirdactstory@gmail.com. at gmail.com.
14: Around Halloween, millions of people across the country pay for the chance to be terrified as they enter all things haunted, from houses to mazes to amusement parks. Katie Riddle went to the Scare Ground Scream Park in Portland, Oregon, and reports that for
32: people who work in the industry, the trick is to scare people, but not too much it's a dark wet cold night that hasn't stopped hundreds from flocking to this amusement park they're touring three so-called haunts this one has a twisted medical theme
21: right this way the doctors are ready for you question is are you ready for them
32: there's just enough light inside this maze to make out plastic body parts hanging from the ceiling a woman in bloody rags jumps out
20: I see you
32: Tucker Morrison and her friend Brianna Hendrickson were some of the screamers in that crowd. I thought it was horrifying. Yeah, it was so scary. In, in a good way or a bad way?
7: In a good way.
32: Vincent Cheryl brought his date here tonight. What is it about being scared that's fun?
18: I think it's mainly the adrenaline that comes with being scared, but also knowing you're safe.
32: Adam Rominger manages the cast. We're not trying to traumatize people. That's not our goal. Rominger's also an actor. This year, he's playing Dr. Buttonhole, a cross between a clown and a deranged doctor. He describes his interactions with guests as a kind of dance. If people make eye contact, and you hold that eye contact, and then they turn their head. They've clearly been scared, and then you start following them. If people seem too agitated, he says, he backs off. A good haunt requires more than talented actors though. There's a whole production company behind this, Vendetta Productions. Staff plan out the sets, characters, and narrative. It's a year-round thing.
28: Going into December, we'll already be talking about what haunts are we going to do next year.
32: In July, they start auditioning actors. Estelle Fulmore is one of the lead producers of the company. She says they rehearse for weeks in advance.
10: (sighs) Actors know who the
25: protagonist is. They know if Are they the person who's hunting? Are they the person
40: who's an accomplice? Are they a victim? So it all
32: adds to a storyline. That storyline, she says, makes for a more structured and authentic experience. The team also has to understand their audience. They found younger generations especially hard to scare.
25: You can tell them that, like, oh, I'm going to throw you into a wood chipper and... I'm going to kill you, and they're just
32: like, oh, yeah, like, I've watched Chucky kill 50 people. They have discovered one useful tool. She says that people get more scared when you tap into
34: something that's familiar from everyday life. And we understand that millennials really are attached to their pets. Like, we have a generation where
32: their pets are their babies. Often, actors will sneak up on visitors and whisper in their ear. Just telling some people that you being here makes your pet sad, makes them go, oh my goodness, like, it, it might. Fulmore fell in love with this industry 15 years ago. You make people scream, you make people laugh, and you make all the friends. And you're just like, I gotta keep, keep doing this. She even met her husband working on a haunted set. They got married in a haunted house. Adam Rominger, the evil clown doctor, officiated. She loves the community she's made here. And she loves watching other people come here, too. Getting to actually experience a moment in life together with your friends. Even if that moment is running away from an evil clown doctor. For NPR News, I'm Kadia Riddle in Portland, Oregon
33: you're
13: listening to all things considered from npr news
0: good evening i'm sharon brody it's 5:48, and coming up in about five minutes here on 90.9 wbur you'll get the story on a new study on carbon emissions and global warming that and much more ahead on all things considered here on wbur
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Circle Furniture, with sustainably sourced sectionals, sofas, ottomans, and more during their annual upholstery event through October. CircleFurniture.com. Tomorrow morning on
0: WBUR, as Massachusetts moves to make a shelter wait list, big questions persist about where families will go while they wait for shelter. You'll learn about one family's search for housing when you listen again tomorrow morning here on 90.9 WBUR.
41: It's election season in Boston. And if you're wondering, wait, who are we voting for or how do I register to vote? We've got you covered. Here's another tip from our field guide to Boston. Boston has 13 city councilors and their terms are up every two years. The council does things like approve the mayor's budget, hold hearings on hot button issues, and send local laws to the mayor's desk. You can register to vote online, by mail, in person, or even when you apply for your driver's license. And the options don't stop there. To cast your ballot, you could vote by mail, drop your ballot in a drop box, vote early, or head to the polls on Election Day, November 7. To get more tips like this about navigating elections and local politics in Boston, head to WBUR.org fieldguide.
13: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers, And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. As the war between Hamas and Israel continues, the diaspora is feeling the pain of discrimination. Advocacy groups here in the U.S. report a spike in threats of harassment and violence against Palestinian, Muslim, and Jewish people since the war began. For many Muslims, memories of a post-9-11 America have resurfaced. Well, we wanted to talk about this with Mustafa He's written a book called How Does It Feel to Be a Problem, Being Young and Arab in America. When we spoke today, I asked what he remembers about those days and weeks following 9-11.
43: What it really was like that era was walking around with your stomach in knots and afraid to be able to mourn the same way that everybody else was mourning because you had no idea if you also had a target on your back. Mm. So it was this complicated uh, stew of emotions.
13: And do you remember specifically what made you feel that? Was there an incident, something someone said or did?
43: Well, you know, the data will indicate that hate crimes went up about 1,700% in the six months following 9-11. And even without that data, if you were around Arab American communities, I mean, everybody had a story or knew of somebody that had a story. And some of it was extremely violent. People were actually volunteering to walk women uh, with hijabs from their homes to the supermarket. Uh, So it was uh, was a very, very tense moment back
13: then. And I mean, I remember, I am not Muslim, but I remember things that weren't explicitly violent in any way, but you could see people being treated differently. You know, you would check in at the airport and and a woman in hijab uh, was getting steered to a different line than I was as a white American.
43: Yes, indeed. I mean, we started calling it TWA, traveling while Arab.
13: (laughs) I want to ask about what role the media may be playing here. And I know that uh, Illinois state rep, Abdel Nasser Rashid has blamed the media in the wake of that for its representation of of the conflict in the Middle East for inspiring hate crimes. Um, Do you agree? Does he have a point?
43: Well, I think over the long course of representations of Palestinians, of Arabs, of Muslims, we've often seen that they get portrayed as uh, second-class citizens. And, you know, we're also missing a sense of, say, context the media should also be asking questions of what happened prior to October 7th. These conflicts didn't begin just, you know, a few weeks ago. So there's a way in which it's always reacting instead of asking questions uh, in the media uh, when it comes to Arabs and Muslims. And that, and that puts us as a, as a secondary position. There's a very well-known TED talk by Jemande Adichie.
36: Uh-huh. And
43: she says that it's really dangerous when your story becomes the second story. And in a lot of ways, Palestinians, Arabs, and Muslims, in the eyes of the media, we are always just the second story. We don't count as much. And not only is that a danger to how the media is run, but it actually is a danger to us because it dehumanizes us.
13: What is the role of politicians, of our of our elected leaders in all of this? Uh, to start at the top, President Biden has denounced anti-Semitism, he has also denounced anti-Muslim sentiment since this war in the Middle East began. And yet you'll have seen he's coming under criticism from all sides uh, for not doing enough, for not speaking forcefully enough, and uh, in particular uh, for not defending in the view of of some, for not condemning Islamophobia in the same way as he has anti-Semitism.
43: Right, I mean, I think it is very important that our leaders uh, set the tone. But that should not only be reserved for domestic politics. And so unless President Biden is willing to actually ask for a ceasefire, I feel like what he's really saying is that Palestinian civilians are going to get killed in this war. And he's OK with that because that's what we've seen over the last three weeks. So, you know, that puts us here also at risk because we are also Palestinians, Arabs, and Muslims in this country. And if he's saying it's okay to kill Palestinian civilians over there, then, you know, he may not be saying it explicitly, but the message is that it's okay to harm us over here.
13: So, how are you thinking about how should we all be thinking about the line between free speech? and hate speech. When we live in a democracy, the United States, where uh, defending the right of others to say things we may disagree with, we may find outrageous, is constitutionally protected.
43: And I agree with that 100%. Uh, In fact, I think that the answer to challenges to free speech is always more free speech. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, what we're seeing is people being intimidated in their speech and curtailed from saying things. We should be able to talk uh, to each other and engage even in difficult conversations. And when those conversations get difficult, we need more conversation, not less conversation.
13: Mustafa Bayoumi. he is the author of How Does It Feel to Be a Problem? Being Young and Arab in America. He's also a professor of English at Brooklyn College City University. Thank you.
43: Thank you very much, Mary Louise.
13: It is unlikely that humans will limit global warming
14: to the target set by the Paris Climate Agreement. That's according to a new study. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports that doesn't mean all is lost.
39: The Paris Climate Agreement set a goal, limit global warming to well below two degrees Celsius compared to temperatures in the late 1800s, and ideally allow no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. That 1.5 is not a magic number. It's an estimate of when some of the most catastrophic effects of climate change kick in, like mass extinctions, 10 feet of sea level rise, that kind of thing. But the new study confirms what other research has already suggested. It's unlikely that humans will limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Yuri Rohel of Imperial College London is one of the authors.
18: It is clear that high likelihood options for limiting warming to 1.5 degrees are gone. And they have been gone for a while, uh, to be honest.
39: Five years ago, it was about 50-50 whether humans could hit the 1.5-degree goal if we cut greenhouse gases from tailpipes and smokestacks. But those emissions are still rising, just slower than they were before. Today, the study estimates we have about a 1 in 6 chance of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees. So not likely, says Rohel but not no
41: chance. It's most definitely not zero and most definitely not unworthy of pursuit.
39: We should keep trying, he says, by cutting emissions as quickly as possible. But also the findings suggest that we should be prepared to exceed 1.5 degrees of warming. That's probably what's going to happen, which is bad, but it's not literally the end of the world because 1.5 degrees isn't like a cliff where we're doomed as soon as we step over the edge. Christopher Smith of the University of Leeds is another author of the new study.
18: If we are able to limit warming to 1.6 degrees or 1.65 degrees or 1.7 degrees, that's a lot better than two degrees. Um, We still need to fight for every tenth of a degree.
39: There are some signs of progress on that front. Renewable energy is growing rapidly and global fossil fuel use could peak as soon as this year, according to a recent report. So even if 1.5 degrees is slipping away, 1.6 or 1.7 is still within our grasp. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News.
13: This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
6: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers, information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at porkcares.org. From Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean. Offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. I'm WBUR
23: City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Striking auto workers have reached tentative deals with all the big three automakers.
1: It really is life-changing. The pay with the longevity of the contract that will get us over $40 an hour is a really good rate.
0: It's Monday, October 30th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Sharon Brody, in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, you'll get reports from three European capitals on differing reactions to the Israel-Hamas war. Also, you'll hear about what behavioral science says regarding how people work through entrenched divisions. And for 30 years, two dedicated skiers in Colorado have prided themselves on being on the first chair to head up the slopes every winter. It takes a lot of strategy. On Wall Street today, stocks closed up. Marketplace has a full range of business news at 6.30. It's 6.01. First, this news.
33: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. President Biden says the executive order he signed today will make the development of artificial intelligence safer for Americans. He says it will help harness the benefits of AI and contain the risks, as NPR's Mara Liason reports.
0: The executive order would invoke the Defense Production Act and require the developers of AI to share their internal data with the government. The idea, says the president, is to make sure AI makes Americans' lives better instead of worse.
5: One thing is clear. To realize the promise of AI and avoid the risk, we need to govern this technology. The order would make AI developers prove that their systems are safe before
8: they are used, and it would require digital watermarks or labels to show which content was generated by AI so that people are not deceived by deep fakes
0: and AI disinformation. Mara NPR News.
33: The Israeli military says its ground troops have freed a soldier who was held hostage by Hamas militants. It's the first known successful military operation to rescue a hostage in Gaza. Meanwhile, the State Department says the U.S. encouraged Israel over the weekend to restore communications networks in Gaza. as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports.
8: Telephone and internet communications have been partially restored in Gaza, and State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says the U.S. was pleased to see Israel take those steps after a blackout over the weekend.
13: Maintaining these channels is not just about connectivity, it is about ensuring that vital information flows, humanitarian coordination continues, and families can stay in touch.
8: The State Department is still trying to help hundreds of Palestinian Americans leave Gaza. The U.S. has been urging Qatar and Egypt to use their influence with Hamas to open a border crossing to Egypt for Americans, though Miller says Hamas is making some demands. He didn't elaborate. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. A
33: federal judge presiding over Donald Trump's federal election interference case has reimposed a gag order. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports.
9: U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin imposed the gag order on Trump two weeks ago, barring him from making public statements targeting the prosecutors, court staff and potential witnesses. Trump appealed and requested that the gag order be lifted as his appeal plays out in court. Judge Chutkin temporarily paused the restrictions to let both sides present her with their arguments. Now she's issued her ruling and has reinstated the gag order and says it will remain in place pending Trump's appeal. She says the First Amendment rights of participants in criminal proceedings must yield, when necessary, to the orderly administration of justice. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington.
33: Meanwhile, a trial today opened in Colorado that could determine whether the Constitution's insurrection clause bars the former president from running again for the White House. The lawsuit seeks to keep Trump off next year's ballot in Colorado. It's one of two such cases that could end up before the Supreme Court. You're listening to NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. An emergency hearing is scheduled for tomorrow in a class action lawsuit to stop the state from making changes to its right to shelter law. Sometime this week, Massachusetts is expected to start putting families seeking shelter on a wait list because it says there is no more room in its family shelter system. The suit by the advocacy group Lawyers for Civil Rights argues that the decision runs counter to the state's shelter law, which guarantees housing for families and pregnant people. People with expertise in children and grief are offering guidance for parents in the days following a mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine. Wellesley-based therapist Omar Ruiz was a guest on WBUR's radio Boston. Today, he shared some tips for parents immediately after a mass shooting.
28: Be open to questions. Children are naturally curious, uh, regardless of what age, because they're looking for answers, especially to things that are confusing or scary. And for parents just to do their best to listen to them, stay calm and offer some reassurance because they're they're scared. Their brains are still developing and they need that support.
0: He says parents should emphasize to their children that they're safe. He also says children should be encouraged to stay in contact with teachers and other school staff if they get scared. State lawmakers are considering a bill that would allow communities in Massachusetts to get a slice of online sales tax revenue. Economic development experts testified in support of the idea on Beacon Hill today. The legislation would place 5% of the sales tax revenue generated by online retailers into a newly created downtown vitality fund, The money would be used for matching grants to support local business improvement districts, Main Street associations, and state-designated cultural districts. The Charles River Watershed Association is getting $600,000 to fund climate resiliency work. The two-year grant from the Barr Foundation will help the nonprofit educate local leaders about climate-friendly policies. These leaders represent the 35 communities along the Charles River between Boston and Hopkinton. The Bridge of Flowers in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts, will be closing tomorrow, as it does every fall. Because of anticipated repair work, it is not expected to reopen next year.
15: Alden Bourne reports. The old trolley bridge connects Shelburne Falls to Buckland and features a walkway surrounded by plants and trees. An engineering study found the infrastructure needs attention, and everything, including the soil, needs to come off for that to happen. Carol DiLorenzo is the head gardener.
22: We've gotten most of the perennials off, quite a number of the
15: shrubs. We still have shrubs and trees to deal with. The perennial shrubs and trees will be stored at her home and a nearby farm. Lorenzo says the community is also pitching in.
22: We're basically offloading plants to people who feel ready to be caretakers. You know, Anywhere from five to 20 plants people are taking with them.
15: If all goes as planned, the bridge will reopen in the spring of 2025. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins face the Panthers, and tonight the Celtics
0: are in Washington against the Wizards. It's 48 degrees in Boston, some rain early, then clearing tomorrow for Halloween. Sunshine, highs in the upper 40s. WBUR
22: supporters include the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia. For 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org
13: on a Monday. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And
14: I'm Juana Summers. Coming up, we'll head to Colorado and meet two friends who have made it their mission for 30 years to be on the first chairlift of ski season. But first, after six and a half weeks, the auto workers' strike appears to be at the finish line. Striking workers have reached a tentative contract with General Motors. That's the last of the big Detroit car companies to settle with the UAW. The union had already made tentative deals with Ford and Chrysler's parent company, Stellantis. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott.
9: Hi, good to be with you.
14: Hey, so what can you tell us about what's in this agreement?
9: We don't know all the specifics of the General Motors deal, but it likely follows the outline set by Ford and Chrysler's parent company. Uh, That includes a 25% pay increase over four years, cost of living adjustments, or COLAs, uh, accelerated promotion to the top of the pay scale, and improved retirement benefits. Uh, From the beginning of this strike, UAW President Sean Fain has been driving a hard bargain with the car makers, and Fain said over the weekend it paid off.
15: The stand-up strike will go down in history as an inflection point for our union and for our movement.
9: The tentative contract also gives auto workers the right to strike over plant closings. Uh, It calls for the reopening of a shuttered Stellantis plant in Illinois. And the union made progress on organizing workers at battery plants, which will be important as we move to more electric cars.
14: Okay, we're calling this a tentative contract, so what still has to happen?
9: That's right. It still needs approval from the union membership. Uh, Sean Fain is the first UAW president to be elected directly by the members, and he says they're the ultimate decision makers. So this is not a done deal. Uh, Earlier this month, in fact, we saw a UAW contract with Mack Truck be rejected by the membership. This agreement, though, seems to have a lot of momentum. Uh, Brandon Bell was one of the very first Ford workers to go on strike. He was back on the job today at Ford's Michigan assembly plant, and he says he's excited about the new contract.
1: It really, it's life changing. The pay plus COLA with the longevity of the contract will get us over $40 an hour, which is a really good rate, especially coming in at 1650
9: Now, this will certainly raise the Detroit company's labor costs, which were already significantly higher than their competitors. Ford says the contract would likely add about $850 to $900 to the cost of a car or truck.
14: I mean, it it seems like we've seen a lot of unions winning big wage gains this year. Is there a common thread to tease out here?
9: You're right. There have been some big wins. Uh, Teamster scored a good contract at UPS. Uh, Some of the airline pilots have won big wage gains. You know, popular support for unions is about as high as it's been in decades. Harry Katz, who's an expert on labor negotiations at Cornell, says the UAW did have some things working in its favor.
16: The uh, economy is strong, the companies would have had a lot more to lose if the strike had continued. The union is strong, they can't replace the workers. So they had a lot of bargaining power and they exercised it.
9: That said, the union did not get everything it wanted. Uh, For example, it didn't get a return to an old-fashioned defined benefit pension plan. Uh, Kat says one of the UAW's big challenges is they just don't have the muscle that they once did. Uh, You know, there are a lot of non-union car makers out there. And even Fords and Chevys now have a lot of parts that are made by non-union workers.
14: Okay, what can the UAW do about that then?
9: Sean Fein says as soon as this deal is finalized, he wants to focus on organizing at some of those other companies. Uh, he said during the strike, workers at Tesla and Toyota and Honda are not the enemy. They're future UAW members. Uh, and certainly this new contract might serve as a kind of billboard for the benefits of union membership. But, you know, both labor law and the political climate make it really hard to organize workers, especially in the south where a lot of those other auto plants are located. So Kant says it is an uphill battle.
16: I don't think they're condemned
9: to fail at
16: that, but um, past evidence is it's going to be a really profound challenge.
9: And, you know, that's an important part of this story. Only about one in 10 workers in the U.S. belongs to a union, only about 6 percent of workers in the private sector. So these big gains that the UAW and other unions have been winning are impressive, but they're not representative of what the typical worker is getting.
13: NPR Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Entrenched conflicts. They exist globally, as we see in the Middle East. Closer to home, Republicans and Democrats remain entrenched. Now, most of us do not stop to consider how brain science might be at play when we are at odds. But NPR's Yuki Noguchi reports understanding our impulses might also help resolve our differences. As social beings,
17: humans are wired to forge strong social bonds. Loyalties to groups helped us survive. Neurologist Olga Klemetsky at University of Vienna in Germany says, you see how social identity plays out on brain scans. Seeing a comrade in pain, a fellow member of one's group, will fire the empathic part of the brain. My brain would simulate the suffering of the other person by reactivating how I feel when I'm feeling bad, right? But let's say an adversary is the one experiencing pain. Klemetsky says not only does the same region not light up, we also sometimes see more activation related to schadenfreude or malicious joy. That's not all. Conflict literally dampens our ability to feel love. Klemetsky says couples who just argued have less activity in regions of the brain that sense attachment and fondness. Tim Phillips says the brain's natural impulses are critical to understanding conflict and its resolution. Phillips and his group Beyond Conflict helped negotiate treaties in Northern Ireland and helped convene what became South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission following apartheid. Phillips is not a neuroscientist, but he says decades of peacebuilding made him appreciate how deeply our ability to navigate conflict is influenced by our evolutionary
18: impulses. And unfortunately, when we ignore how our brains actually work, then we're increasingly finding ourselves in the situation we increasingly find ourselves in, which is that we're throwing bad approaches after bad approaches.
17: He says conflict worsens when we feel it threatens things we hold dearest, our social identity or our people. We dig in deeper, become less rational. When fanned or exploited, such sentiments can override our sense of morality, morph into hate and dehumanization, which make atrocities possible. Diffusing an escalating situation, therefore, first requires releasing a brain hijacked by defensive emotion. It means saying to your opponent, for example,
18: I understand how important this is to you. I understand this is core to your identity and your community, and I respect your sacred values. And there's a cognitive shift.
17: It shifts because it emotionally disarms them. Philip says such statements can change history. He cites Nelson Mandela in 1990, emerging from 27 years of political imprisonment to call South African President F.W. de Klerk, one of his captors,
18: an honorable man. And it had a huge impact. Nelson Mandela called me an honorable man. Without thinking about it rationally, he was probably deeply surprised. But Mandela just gave him a bridge.
17: The two men then worked to end apartheid. Phillips says a similar approach helped him repair a long-time friendship damaged by sharp political differences. Phillips offered an olive branch, voicing respect for his friend's viewpoint and how he derived arrived there. Within days, the friend returned. He said that statement prompted him to rethink his own hardline views.
18: He literally said, I felt like I could breathe in our relationship again. And I started to change my mind. And I didn't sell him on the, the details and the policy. No. It's emotional.
17: They might not agree, he says, but at least they can talk. Yuki and PR News.
14: season has officially begun in Colorado. The first resort opened yesterday and on the very first chairlift of the morning were two friends who've made getting that first chair of winter their mission for more than 30 years. Colorado Public Radio's Stina Sieg has their story.
19: It's opening day at Arapahoe Basin ski area and despite the pelting snow, there's a long line of skiers and boarders eager to ride their first chairlift of winter.
20: Five, four, three, two, one.
19: And on that very first chair, two very familiar faces who've been in line for two days.
21: My name is Nate Dog, N-A-T-E, D-O-G-G-G-G. My name is Trailer Tom.
19: Nate Nadler and Tom Miller live nearby, Nadler owns a hot tub servicing business and Miller's a financial consultant, better known as the kings of first chair.
15: A few days in line is always well worth the wait.
19: They started when Miller was 15, Nadler was 14 and know what it takes. The night before opening day, Nadler shows me where he's sleeping, directly underneath the Thunder Mountain Express chairlift.
21: I'll scoot the snow out and just sleep right on the ground.
19: A few years ago, Nadler had been waiting a whole day at one resort when he saw a stomach-dropping social media blast from another ski
21: area. Oh my gosh, they're opening in one hour. I need to get there. I need that first chair. So I jump in my vehicle, start heading up the highway, and I'm like, (laughs) I left my snowboard at the other chairlift.
19: He screeched his old Jeep around, grabbed his board, and somehow made it before that first lift started spinning.
21: And sure enough, there was one person waiting in line already. But it's a four-person chair. Still got that first chair. But gosh darn it, we were scared for it. We were
15: scared. It's that burning desire. If you have something in your life that you are so inspired to do that'll bring a tear to your eye, that's what this is for us.
19: Sunday marked their 31st first chair. Behind them, so many people who may take their crown someday but not this year.
20: We're number two! We're number two!
19: From PR News, I'm Stina Seek at Arapahoe Basin.
13: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. In about 10 minutes, it's Marketplace, including a report on how severe weather is affecting the New York City subway system. In Massachusetts, the average price of gasoline continues to drop. The latest survey by AAA Northeast puts today's average at $3.57 a gallon. That's 18 cents lower than a month ago. On Wall Street today, the Dow closed up about 1.5%. The S&P is up 1.2%. The NASDAQ gained just over
22: 1.1%. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra. Benjamin Zander leads Wagner, Hindemith, and Brahms this Sunday, November 5th, bostonphil.org. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org.
0: It is 48 degrees in Boston, some rain early, then clearing tonight. Overnight lows in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, for Halloween, sunshine highs in the upper 40s. And on Wednesday, partly sunny, a chance of showers and highs in the upper 40s. This is 90.9
12: WBUR. WBUR supporters include Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org.
13: It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Let's look at how the war between Israel and Hamas
14: is perceived outside the Middle East or the United States, specifically in Europe, where politics and culture were heavily shaped by war in the 20th century. Joining us are three NPR correspondents, Lauren Freyer in London, Eleanor Beardsley in Paris, and Rob Schmitz in Berlin. Hi to all of you. Hi, Juana. Hello. Hello, Juana. So all three governments where you are are firm supporters of Israel's right to exist, but each is also facing domestic criticism of that support, What does that look like where you are? And Lauren, I want to start with you in London.
25: Yeah, so London has filled with like more than 100,000 people at these pro-Palestinian rallies every Saturday since the war broke out. They've been largely peaceful. There have been about 100 arrests over the past month for things like breaching public safety and inciting violence. And today, the hardline home secretary, the government here is ruled by the Conservative Party, called these protests hate marches. And she's actually asked police to arrest more of the protests. Tweak the law if need be, redefine what free speech means, what extremism means under UK law. And let me just talk you through an example. This is the sound of a sort of boisterous crowd on a London subway train on their way to a pro Palestinian rally Palestine. last week.
20: Free, free. Palestine. Palestine. Free, free. Palestine. Hope you
25: will have a and the day guy day saying free, free is, is actually the train conductor, like on the PA system. And then he ends with, oh, have a pleasant day, look after yourselves, be safe out there. But he was suspended from his job for taking part in that protest.
10: And Juana, uh, this is Rob in Berlin. You know, if a train conductor said that here in Germany, he'd not only be fired, uh, but he might be criminally prosecuted for hate speech. Here in Berlin, all pro-Palestinian rallies are banned. Schools have banned Palestinian flags. The Palestinian headdress, the kafia, which is sort of a hipster accessory that a lot of teenagers wear because it's getting cold out here. as scarves, but they can't wear them anymore. You know, and the reason that Germany is so strict about this is because of the German concept of Staatskreisung. And this literally means reason of state. And it means that because of the atrocities that Germany committed against Jews in World War II, the existence and security of Israel is connected to the foundation of modern Germany. And that's why Germany is taking these protests so seriously.
14: And Eleanor, you're in Paris. What about France is different and how it approaches the war in Israel and Gaza?
7: Yeah, I think France is somewhere in between these two Um examples we've just had, you know, France actually has the largest Muslim and Jewish populations in Europe. So Macron, President Emmanuel Macron, is trying to have a somewhat of a balanced approach. So, of course, France condemned the Hamas terrorist attacks and and supports Israel's right to defend itself. But he's trying to also call for a humanitarian truce to get aid through. You know, Macron is under a lot of pressure. Thirty-five French citizens were killed in that Hamas attack, and that's more than any other foreign nation, I believe, even the U.S., Several more are being held hostage, and pro-Palestinian demonstrations have been banned here for fear of violence.
14: And Eleanor, I, I understand that French President Emmanuel Macron was in Israel last week. What, what is he hoping to accomplish?
7: Well, he wants the, to see the two-state solution revived. He said just because it's an old idea doesn't mean it's defunct. So he did visit you know, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. But he also visited Mahmoud Abbas, uh, head of the Palestinian Authority and the president of Egypt and the king of Jordan. He wants something to move besides violence. He wants this violence, to, this cycle that we keep seeing to end because it often reverberates back in France. I think we've seen like
25: a lot of European politicians doing that sort of circuit. I mean, the U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak went to Israel, went to Saudi earlier this month. The U.K. foreign minister is in the region there today. He's already been like a few times since the war began on October 7th. So like a flurry of diplomacy for sure. But I mean, at least in the U.K., it's unclear what power the U.K. really has. It does have like deep historical links to to the region of British mandate Palestine before, you know, the, the establishment of the state of Israel. But, you know, the U.K. is a supplier of weapons to Israel. And just like Eleanor said, you know, the U.K. has stopped short of calling for a ceasefire and has absolutely like thrown its its backing behind Israel. I mean, some of this travel is a little bit like, you know, looking statesmanlike. a U.K. election is coming next year. But it's it's unclear what power these politicians really have to change facts on the ground. Rob,
14: what about in Germany? What would the German government like to see happen in this war?
10: Well, Chancellor Olaf Scholz has been very firm in his opinion that Israel has a right to defend itself. But that's the extent of his comments. He also supported the European Union stance released last week in a communique that called for, quote, humanitarian pauses in the conflict so that people in Gaza could receive humanitarian assistance. The EU is one of the biggest funders of aid to the Palestinian territories, and Germany gives around $20 million a year. So this is a priority too for Germany, but Germany also, like the US, sells weapons to Israel, weapons that are now being used against Palestinians.
14: I mean, this war has touched so many people in so many places in unexpected ways. Lauren, in Britain, is public opinion changing as Israel continues its offensive in Gaza?
25: Yeah, there was a poll recently that showed 89% of Britain support a ceasefire, but the UK government and both main political parties in Britain have stopped short of calling for a ceasefire. There's been a big backlash within the opposition Labour Party. Two dozen party officials resigned in protest. Big names like London Mayor Sadiq Khan, Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham are going ahead and calling for a ceasefire, breaking with their party leadership. And one of the biggest names calling for a ceasefire here is the top politician in Scotland. His name is Hamza Youssef, and his in-laws are trapped in Gaza right now. Here's what he told a UK TV channel.
12: I think the UK's position is a shameful abdication of their moral responsibility. You know, when I spoke to my mother-in-law last She told me that she felt completely abandoned by the UK government and, you know, how many more children have to die?
25: So he's one of the strongest voices calling for a ceasefire here, and he has a very personal connection to Gaza.
14: Eleanor, I want to ask you the same question. How is public opinion changing in France?
7: So after the Hamas attacks on Israel, there was a huge condemnation from France. People were very sympathetic because, as you may remember, France had two massive terrorist attacks in 2015. So people felt a lot of sympathy. But as this bombing goes on, Juana of Gaza, things are getting difficult. There have been 800 anti-Semitic acts since October 7th. That's double the number from the entire year of 2022. So Jewish people are are nervous. And finally,
14: to you, Rob, is the war having any impact on German policy toward
10: Israel? I think it's probably strengthening Germany's position in, in defending Israel. There are several European leaders that have spoken out against Israel's cutting off of water and supply lines to Gaza, but Chancellor Olaf Scholz has refrained from this criticism. Instead, he says that Israel is a democratic state guided by humanitarian principles, and because of that, he believes the Israeli army will also observe the rules that follow international laws. So You know, this view sounds to some probably a little naive, and it's definitely a bit isolated when compared to the view of other EU leaders. And it's rooted really in Schultz's cautious approach to Israel that is really guided by what he sees as Germany's historic responsibility towards Israel.
14: That's NPR's Rob Schmitz in Berlin, Eleanor Beardsley in Paris, and Lauren Freyer in London. Thanks to all of you. Thanks. Thank you.
25: Thanks for having us.
13: This is NPR News.
0: Thanks for joining us this Monday evening here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 6.30, it's Marketplace. Tomorrow morning on WBUR, you'll hear that as Massachusetts moves to make a shelter wait list, big questions persist about where families will go while they wait for shelter. You'll get the story on one family's search for housing. That's tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR and listen on the WBUR app. It's 48 degrees in Boston, rain clearing
23: up tonight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for fifty five years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com.